You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Max. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Thanks for having me again. Yeah, pleasure to have you. It's been a while, been too long. Um, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Max Abrams, political scientist at Northeastern University and author of the book, Rules for Rebels, The Science of Victory in Militant History. That has some relevance to Hamas. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that before this is over. I think you have some guidance for them probably in the book that they may not uh-huh. have entirely may not have entirely followed. Maybe they, they failed to seek your uh, counsel. You're absolutely right. The What I do in the book is I look at um, hundreds of aggrieved groups from all over the world going back decades to try to discern which kinds of behaviors are more likely to produce a favorable political outcome. And what I find is that Hamas, among many other groups, are in violation. There's there's wide variation in terms of the, um, you know, strategic quality um, of groups, and this is largely predictive of um, how well they'll do. Can you? I, I'd like to get back and talk about this at the end of our conversation. Right now, if you want to just give, kind of tease that by giving us like one rule Hamas has violated, one of your rules. Well, the most important rule is that. Militant leaders should oppose directing their violence against civilian targets. A lot of people, they think of militant groups or terrorist groups, and they think that they must all be maximally extreme. You know, they must all want to harm the most number of civilians. But actually, the most successful groups are the ones that tend to eschew civilian targets. Um, And so, of course, this raises the question of what do we mean by success, right? What is the metric of success? Um, The way that I measure success, and it's certainly not the only one that could be done, but I tend to focus on coercive effectiveness. That is the extent to which the target country is pressured into politically complying by making concessions. And so my main empirical finding over the years is that civilian targeting is counterproductive for coercing governments into making concessions. Now, some people might counter and say, well, that's not what Hamas wanted. Hamas actually wanted to provoke a very heavy-handed Israeli response. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't have direct insight into the minds of terrorists. Um, but if that is, if that was the goal, provocation rather than coercion, then sure, attacking you know twelve hundred civilians would be a good approach. Okay, I do want to get back to this. Then it, 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 it sounds like, for example, you you would uh, you would think the first intifada was uh, more wisely conducted than the second one. Um, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you're nodding your head and, and uh, confirming my, my my astuteness. Um. So, uh, yeah. So what what, what we're going to talk about uh, is well, for to some extent, you know, the the Israel Hamas conflict, but also it's it's kind of domestic American 
ramifications, uh, certainly including um, things that uh, we both, I'm sure, condemn, uh, you know, greater, uh, stronger expression of anti-Semitic sentiment, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim sentiment, things like that. I think you and I have very different views on this, on the subject, uh, but uh, we, and that's what we're going to talk about, but we agree on some things. Uh, also, you know, uh, issues are rising over free speech, obviously, on college campuses. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of troubled by the sense of growing tension and even conflict between what I guess you could very loosely call pro-Israel and pro-Palestine uh, factions in the U.S., although both of those are in some ways misleading terms. Um, but you have uh, you've been tweeting a lot about the anti-Semitic part of that. And that caught my eye because uh, part of my view is uh, all of the tweeting about things on both sides and in general on social media, um, all the, the, the highlighting of it can be, can make it worse, uh, especially if people aren't, uh, aren't very discerning uh, and, and careful in the way they describe these things and so on. Uh, and I wrote a piece about that in my newsletter, in the non-zero newsletter. Um, uh, well, there were two relevant ones, one, one called, uh, the river to the sea, Rorschach test, and the other one called escape the social media matrix. Um, and actually the way this started, I saw a tweet of yours and I asked about it's, uh, the origin of the story. I, I, I asked you on Twitter, like, where does this story come from? Because there wasn't a link. And that got me interested um, in in your approach to this. Uh, and that's what I'm going to take some issue with. Uh, but um, before I do that... Part, part, just, just a quick response. I mean, part of yeah. this is just a technical issue because it used to be on Twitter where you would tweet a story mm -hmm. and the title of the story, the words of the story would come up um, in the tweet, but that's no longer the case. And so what, if you want the words to come up now, what right. you need to do is supply a screenshot. And so, but before that was the way Twitter worked, I uh, used right. to just send the link. Now, unlike most people, I don't just make claims, I actually supply the screenshot. And Usually, I can tell you my entire methodology. It's actually quite standardized and rigorous for tw for for Twitter because yeah, I have to yeah. repeat the methodology. But if anyone were to find my screenshot and then enter it into Google, um, they would find it. It's also restricted within the past twenty four hours, so it's easily sure. identifiable to any reader. Sure. Um... And I didn't mean to to accuse you of, of any kind of sleight of hand and not providing the link. I've run into the same frustration um, and, and it, it, it's odd uh, from from Twitter, Twitter's own kind of strategic view, because I think in a way this policy is well, what happens is the links now, if you put a New York Times link in, it shows you a picture from the piece, but all it says is New York Times, you don't know what the headline is. So I find myself clicking now just to find out what the headline is. I'm like leaving Twitter in cases where I would not have left Twitter before. So anyway, but whatever Elon Musk thinks is the smartest thing. Uh, you know, he's a billionaire. I'm not. 
Um, the so anyway, no, I wasn't that that wasn't my issue, but it was a case where um I tracked down the the actual story, and I want to ask you, was it productive to say uh to take this story and put it out on on Twitter as a uh, uh and in fact you cast it uh, as a possible product of of you people. Be- Robert, sure, could you please be more precise? Let's, sure. let's let's hear what you're talking about. Sure. So you, what you said, the, the tweet said, okay, it called attention to a story in the New York Post uh, about an anti-Semitic attack. And the headline was, Jewish man attacked at Lower Manhattan, Dwayne Reed, impossible hate crime. That's what we saw in the tweet. But as you say, it was just a screenshot, whereas in pre-Musk days, it would have, there would have been a link. You can put the link in the tweet. That's what I usually do. But, but I, 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 I know you weren't trying to, uh, to hide the ball or anything. Um, and so I, so, and, and you tweeted, uh, nothing to worry about, probably just another daily victim of inciting the global intifada. Um, before we get into what the story is, let me say to be, that. To be honest, Robert, that's actually, so let's compare my language to so I, so I do not say that it's definitely, but I actually use right, the word right. probably. And what right. did the actual story say? What word did it use to describe the hate crime? You said, you said what? Well, the headline what is the... Jewish man attacked at Lower Manhattan, Dwayne Reed, impossible hate crime. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let, me, said, let me continue. So I... the distinction is between possible and probable? No, I haven't finished. I haven't finished. Okay, okay. So I'll finish then. Um, uh, first of all, my general philosophy is, I, I think there's a chance you could argue that even when these things are indeed uh, these like egregious direct manifestations of, say, uh, students calling uh, for global intifada, which you suggest this may be, I'm, I'm not sure it's productive. I mean, l- let me just say, I think if there were no social media, and people yeah. weren't, if both sides weren't calling attention to all this, there might be less of it. Because I think there's there's just a reaction to it on both sides, let alone how the things are presented and whether the person is being discerning in the examples they choose. I just think maybe we'd be better off if if everyone just didn't talk about it and it might stay at a lower level on both sides, okay? Uh, on b- both the anti-Islam, anti-Arab yeah. stuff, and I, answer, I think that's possible, but I, but I also yeah, but Robert, Robert, let me get a word in. here. Yeah, sure. Let me get a word in, if you would. Um, I completely disagree. I actually think that there's tremendous value. It's very important for um, people to have more information. Um, there is a widespread view on Twitter. The biggest, like people with much bigger Twitter accounts than I do are flatly lying to many, many more people than I have access to about sure. what is going on in this country. Um, on, both so- spe- on both sides, they're doing that, um, right? On both speci- sides. Specifically with respect to this uh, major, major rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, um, as well as what's going on on college campuses. Um, I'll give you an example from a few minutes ago. 
Uh, Glenn Greenwald, and I, I like Glenn in many ways. I think he's smart. Um, I show, I have a lot of respect for him. And he's, you know, he's a nice guy yeah, and very talented. But, we, you know, we disagree a lot on, on these sorts of issues. Um, and he put out a tweet saying something to the effect of, you know, Rutgers suspends the, the student group, Students for Justice in Palestine, because, you know, universities are just anti-Palestine. And this is a gross violation um, of, like, university rules and free speech law in this country, which protects people for expressing different political preferences. And so I not only responded to him, but previously had tweeted out that a member of SJP had recently been arrested for issuing a death threat specifically against a Jewish student at Rutgers, and that this was many, uh, this was one of several violations uh, against basic rule policy. So, you know, it, does what I have to say have value? Do you think that it matters for people to understand that there are death threats against students? Or do you think it's better for people to simply think that Rutgers was shutting down a student group simply because it was pro-Palestine? In my Twitter, what I've done uh, largely over the past few months is do things like that, make what I consider to be important empirical corrections, which provide information to people about what is going on in this country. And I am on the I, I have been on the side of factual accuracy. And even your case, mm. uh, with respect, seems like a rather trivial objection. Well, I haven't I haven't gotten to the objection, actually, but but okay. uh, but uh... I agree that providing context is important and adding that. Now, if I were Glenn, my, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. If I were Glenn, I, my reply would be, okay, well, they arrested him. You don't, we don't generally ban the groups of uh, that people who are arrested belong to, but whatever. I don't want to get into that particular argument, but it's valuable that you've added that information because we have a better understanding of why the group may have been banned. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, if you remember the, uh, the demonstration in front of the restaurant Goldie's in Philadelphia, where the pro-Palestine demonstrators were chanting, Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide, we charge you with genocide. That was depicted, I don't know how you handle it on social media, as, as being uh, uh, solely because the owner was Jewish. That was the purported motivation of the demonstration. The governor of Pennsylvania repeated this time and again. Tons of people said it on social media. It wasn't true. If you add the context, there were a number of things that the protesters believed the owner had done that may or may not be true. He may or may not have fired uh, Palestinian uh, pro uh, workers for wearing Palestinian pins. He may or may not have, let me finish. He may or may not have steered uh, money to a charity that may or may not have helped the idea. And then if you look further into it, you realize it's just a charity that helps, that provides first aid stuff. And maybe they in some ways did uh, provide resources, the IDF, whatever. You, I, I encourage looking into as far as possible. And I would have said to those demonstrators, by the way, do not do this. 
because it's obviously going to remind Jews of Kristallnacht. It's obviously going to get distorted. People are going to say it's just because the owner is Jewish. So I don't support the demonstration. But what what in the piece I wrote about this, I'm saying like this is the problem. There are millions of people out there who are still under the impression that that demonstration was just because the owner was Jewish. That's not true. So. Yeah, I, I, I support the people who provided context there. I support you for providing context in the case Glenn Greenwald called attention to. So yeah, is no, my position I, on I that clear? To, I just want to say right now, for all of your listeners, there, there are numerous, numerous um, cases of really egregious anti-Semitism, which have absolutely nothing to do with you know, criticizing Israel or expressing the goal of like a free Palestine or from the river to the sea. My feed focuses on cases of the Jewish diaspora um, being attacked, usually physically attacked. There are numerous cases of physical attacks, as well as I focus on threats of attacking Jews, in physically attacking Jews in the mm -hmm. diaspora, as well as just overt cases of anti-Semitism, which have nothing to do with Israel. For example, you know, vandalizing menorahs or setting up shop outside of a Chabad house or, or, or going after trailing um, Jews who return from synagogue and screaming at them you know, violent chants directed specifically against them. Um, if you follow most people on Twitter, like they don't cover this, but I have a steady stream of these kinds of reports which are popping up daily. So anybody who's interested in anti-Semitism, which can't be misunderstood as like criticism of Israel or just expressions of pro-Palestine, I'm talking about violence, threats of violence, and focusing on on basically restricting people's First Amendments by punishing them for celebrating their Jewishness. It, 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 my thread is just full of them. And, and, and they're very easy to find. I mean, Robert, you just need to have access to a Google. Um, I all I include, I don't just make claims, I include at the very least. Um, screenshots and uh, usually the links, and then I talk about it in interviews like that. But those who don't follow me would have a misunderstanding of what's going on in this country in terms of understanding the global antifada. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are, there are two separate kinds of things I have issues with, and maybe uh, one of them you don't have an issue with. Uh, uh, you just suggested you don't uh, you agree with me that we should not suppress speech about uh, from the river to the sea. Yeah, uh, it's okay. a distraction. And, and what about global intifada? So unfortunate. So basically, I like to make a distinction in my research as well as in my commentary. Um, when we talk about extremeness, that's mm -hmm. a commonly used word. And it's um, often underspecified. When I think of extremeness, I think of 
political preferences compared to tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, um, or I would say almost categorically, um, I believe that the expression of political preferences um, should be protected um, under the First Amendment. So you could say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm totally opposed to this country or that country, and I also don't even think that it should exist. Mm -hmm. I don't see that in itself as a violation of the First Amendment. Um, And that's why the focus of my Twitter and commentary is on actually the violence, the threat of violence. Um, There's a lot of gaslighting that's gone on about the term antifada, okay? And the reason is, is because, um, of course, uh, proponents of Palestine, which includes sometimes um, advocates of Hamas, um, it includes um, critics of Israel. It also includes anti-Zionists who are, you know, opposed to any kind of Israel, etc. But these kinds of people, this large group, um, which could be subdivided in many different ways, they tend to try to poo-poo and downplay the severity of the word uh, antifada. And one of the ways that they do this one of their gaslighting tactics, there are many which are um, equally unpersuasive, but one of the things that they do is they like to, you know, say, well, you get the definition, you know, the definition of it is actually, you know, uprising uh, uprising or or shaking off. And they say, this has nothing to do with with terrorism. This doesn't denote violence. Um, I saw, you know, there's a big Twitter I I think we... I think we no, kind of agree on this, but you're yeah, saying but, that would be protected speech. Are you saying that uh, would be protected speech? Well, because no, I no. That's that's saying, well, let me let me tell me how you differ from my belief. My belief is well. Okay, okay. Well, uh, let me just say my that's view that's is like tactic. okay. I'll, I'll I'll let you. I'll give you your chance to elaborate. It, uh, I, a, I just want to say it's a violent tactic. Whereas River to the Sea isn't saying right. River to the Sea isn't, but saying Global Intifada is. Yeah. Because okay, so that's your position. That's from, all I wanted. Okay, got from, it. From the river to the sea is an expression of a political preference. Right. Whereas calling for an antifada is a call for violence. But the bigger, the bigger, but even that, even that is constitutional. Like if you look at Brandenburg versus Ohio, like so it is can, constitutionally protected. No, no, no. I have no. a lot to say, please. Okay, but I I really want to get back to your tweet. I haven't even finished. I get your I now get the distinction you, you see okay, between well, global. Then I just won't. I, just give me two seconds. Okay, please. So, like in Brandenburg versus Ohio, you can like uh, calling for violence could be constitutionally protected. For example, Nikki Haley could say that she wants to just bomb the shit out of Iran, and that wouldn't be illegal. But where the law, what the law clearly doesn't protect is when there's an incitement 
for violence. Um, and, it, and it's usually the incitement mm -hmm. of the violence mm -hmm. is directed, the audience is directed towards American, like perpetrators against American victims. And that's why calls for the global anti-fada are really problematic because they are inciting a large number of attacks and threats in the United States against American citizens. And I, I do not believe that that is constitutionally protected and it surely isn't conducive to public safety in this country. So that's where I draw so the people, line. So people should, who use the phrase, should be uh, disciplined, what, arrested or what? I think that certainly at universities, they shouldn't allow uh, mobs of people to go around in masks, mm -hmm. screaming in the faces of Jewish students for a global antifada because it is reasonable. It is absolutely reasonable to interpret that as a threatening situation against them. Mm -hmm. That's okay. not constitutionally protected. And, it, and it's totally against university rules. It's harassment, it's intimidation. It, it's completely contrary to a sense of safety required to, to do learning. So. For me, it's not from the river to the sea. That's not the big problem. It's the chance for the Antifada, especially the global Antifada, by masked people mm -hmm. screaming at, you know, defenseless Jews. That That is where I draw the line. Okay, so now that's clear. I mean, I certainly draw a line. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I would advise protesters not to use the phrase global Antifada, not because I think they mean kill all the Jews in the world. I think most of them don't mean that. I, I suspect they mean various things, including uh, global uh, global uprising against imperialism, settler colonialism, blah, blah, blah. I think they mean a lot of things, but it is so predictable that a number of Jews will take the phrase to mean kill all the Jews in the world that I would advise them not to use it. I wouldn't say the same thing about from the river to the sea. So there's, there's some degree of, uh, of correspondence of our views. Um, I, uh, uh, but, but on this, but I was going to say, so there is that concern, like the suppression of legitimate speech. And, and I don't know how, I, I haven't thought through the whole thing on what the college policy on global intifada should be. Uh, we probably agree that those three college presidents didn't do a great job. We may disagree on exactly why, but we can get back to that maybe if we have time. Um, I want to say the, uh, but the other, to get back to my other concern, and I hear, I think here you and I just, to some extent, we, we disagree about uh, whether uh, everyone maximally publicizing every event on both sides, that is uh, anti-Semitic events or arguably anti-Semitic events and arguably anti-Muslim, anti-Arab events, whether that's productive, we, we may disagree on that. I think it's not. We, but we I, do. I, I think it's very yeah, important to call attention to attacks against yeah, Jews you, in, in you America. Said that. You have and, said and maybe that. you yes. don't. And maybe you don't, but I do. You, you have said that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do not. I do not think uh, it is healthy in the current environment to maximally publicize, especially without context, uh, every incident. Now, um, and and I do think your tweet is people is, want to know less about attacks against Jews. Then don't follow me. Well, here's what I would here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Here's what I would say is uh, it, in general, if people 
are already at least as freaked out as the objective circumstances warrant, whether it's the chances of them getting carjacked or school shootings or whatever. I mean, of course, all these incidents should be on the public record. But 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 if you ask me, am I going to go tell uh, the mother down the street about a, a school shooting in Ohio when I know she's already freaked out? The answer is no, it's not. It's not. It's not. I don't think that's healthy, but that's my view. And, and just, just respond. I mean, people already yeah. know that there are carjackings. There isn't a big constituency on social media or in the media that goes around dedicating their you know commentary to downplaying carjackings. Whereas there are people with these huge accounts who are completely misrepresenting the amount of anti-Semitism in the United States. And so to an extent, I try to provide information so that if people do read my feed, they're actually informed that these bigger opinion makers are misleading them. Now, you agree that there are people on both sides doing misleading, right? Um, be more specific. Well, I mean, uh, uh, for example, this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but just something I saw yesterday that got 7,000 retweets, okay, retweets. The likes were like 20,000, okay? And it's a video that says, uh, Hamas leader calls for a genocide against Jewish people worldwide. It's a video of a guy, and that's all it says. And there's no like, wait, which Hamas leader? This guy actually doesn't look familiar. I think I've seen the pictures of Hamas leaders. And it's a video, and he is saying these horrible things, uh, but it turns out, and they provided no context. It's a video from 2019. This guy wasn't a particular leader. He was in the Legislative Council. What he said was condemned by some members of Hamas. Anyway, almost everyone leading, you know, <laughs> thinks, I mean, that's just clearly, you would agree, right? You shouldn't do that without content. You would agree or not? Well, this was a Hamas official did call for attacks against Jews, but in maybe 2019. Argue, right. OK, so maybe you could say that it was dated um, or maybe that it should have been right. Maybe the person should have said, Max, will you at least agree that the person should have said this happened in 2019 and this was not the leader of Hamas? Yeah. OK, that's what I'm saying got 7,000 retweets by people who are now more freaked out about a global a crusade to kill all the Jews. No. That's what I don't think is healthy. Can I just say one more thing? In term, because honestly, you, you did start this off with a discussion, maybe a little critical of, of methods. What I do is very simple. I go into Google and I restrict the temporal horizon to the past 24 hours. And I type in Jewish attacked, Jewish attack, um, menorah vandalized, um, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic, uh, uh, Palestinian arrest. And so it's all within 24 hours. And when I do this, I do this search multiple times a day and I get multiple returns just within those key words for that temporal time period horizon okay these are all these are all fresh cases and they are happening all over america okay so let let's uh and again you just think uh 
everyone's seeing as much as possible of this stuff is good. I personally, and we, and I, I hope we have time to get to this uh, this discussion um, about uh, whether there's such a thing as a group uh, being too freaked out about threats to it. I think it happens all the time. It leads to unhealthy responses. Get, I think the response in Gaza right now is an example. I think Israel is hurting I mean, its own I'm, interests right now because of this. I'm responding to these major opinion makers who are misleading the public about the amount of anti-Semitism that's going on in this country. If mm -hmm. you could get them to desist, I would gladly stop providing concrete empirical evidence, which smashes their narrative multiple times a day. Okay. So let's just look at your tweet. And my, my, my point, my complaint about it is a little bit of a quibble, but let's look at the underlying story. And again, I would encourage you, put the link in the tweet. There was room. You could have put the link and made it easier for people to see the context because here, here is, uh, the context. I mean, again, what, uh, what, uh, let me find the tweet. What people uh, saw was the- uh, Just to repeat, re repeat what the headline is and yeah. repeat what I tweeted. Headline is Jewish man attacked at Lower Manhattan, Dwayne Reed, impossible hate crime. No link to the story. It, it was a, a screenshot of a New York Post headline. Right, right. And then, and then what did I tweet? What did I say? Your tweet was nothing to worry about, which was sarcastic. Probably just another daily victim of inciting the global intifada. So you're suggesting that this was a consequence of people going around saying global intifada. Now, let me, yes. let's, let's talk about this story. What happened? Okay. <clears throat> uh, a, a Jewish man, uh, this is, I'm, I'll just read from the New York Post. Uh, the Jewish man who I guess was wearing a yarmulke was identifiably Jewish, accidentally bumped into an unknown individual exiting the location. Uh, who turned out to be a black guy to have him on camera. The unhinged suspect punched the 66-year-old in the head, making an anti-Semitic remark, and then ran off. Obviously, I condemn this. It's bad to punch people. It's worse to make, you know, uh, ethnic slurs when you're doing it. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. I seriously doubt that this has anything to do with students chanting global intifada. In fact, I would suggest that this is the kind of thing that I, I you know, I mean, look, th this is, let, let me just, can I, let me just, let me, let me say several sentences and I'll tell I'm you what I'm happy that you're reading all this information. I think that it Good. really let me explain why I think it's relevant. At all. Good. I'll give you a chance to say that. Yeah. I the, think the, you're the, saying the, everything that needs to be said almost. Okay, good. Well, then you don't have to reply, but I'll, I'll certainly let you. The there is obviously a whole category of anti-Semitic crimes, putting a swastika on a synagogue, right, and on and on and on, and we know we know the kind, right, and they can become violent, and it's bad enough when they're not, when it's just a swastika, but that clearly are, uh, you know, are clearly motivated in a certain sense by. Uh, what you might call ideological anti-Semitism, right? And it's a purposeful, directed attack. And I'm willing to believe that when you see uh, uh, an, uh, those things happening, they may well be a consequence uh, of the current tension, including people chanting things on campuses. And of course, what I worry about is that they may be a consequences of things 
that happened in in reaction to the kind of uh, social media, uh, the the kind of temperature level on social media that I'm worried about. Right. In other words, it's possible that somebody painting a swastika on a synagogue, if they if they hadn't been on social media and seen what they consider excessive uh, uh, unwarranted complaints from the other side, they might, might not have happened. I just think it's pretty obvious that the way civil strife heats up is in symmetrical reaction against the other. That's why I'm worried about the temperature level on social media. Now, let me just, just finish. Like this guy, I've seen the picture. I really don't think he was, he was, uh, he, he spends, uh, his time, uh, either at protests yeah, yelling global intifada or reading about them. I, I suspect, in fact, I think there's a real chance that, that, uh, that, that this is the kind of thing. I mean, unfortunately there is a baseline level of expressions of bigotry generally, including anti-Semitism. It's terrible, but, but it would not surprise me at all. If, if this had happened five years ago, the post wouldn't have even reported it. But but they know that in the current climate, a headline like the one you highlighted is going to get the page clicks in part because people think this is part of the of this this uh, pro-Palestine hatred of Jews. When when you read the piece, it's actually very unlikely that it's part of that. That's not true at all. That, that, right. To, to an extent, you know, you're what you're you know, I, I appreciate you're sticking to the story. So what did we find out here? That a obviously Jewish person was punched in the face by a black an person, an anti-Semite, anti-Semitic, yeah, in New in New York City, right, at exactly the time that you have large mobs of people screaming for a global anti-Fada. Do you understand mm. global antifada is not a slogan which is restricted to university campuses. It's ubiquitous at these mob rallies. And in New York City in particular, you see these mob rallies on a on, you know, probably daily. Certainly weekly. You, so you you're ruling out the possibility that this person based in New York is acting in accordance with the slogan that's being chanted all around him? I mean, I'm not ruling and, it and out. By, I think, and, and, and I think again, the probability it, is low. Let me be clear. I'm not ruling it out. Tweet, I think the probability tweet, is low. In my tweet, read my tweet again. I don't say it's definitive. Is I it say probably just probably. another daily victim? Well, you think it's yeah, higher well, than 50%. It is a daily I victim. Think, yeah. What? Yes. So probably another daily victim. True, of inciting true. the global intifada. Yes. Do you do you agree that uh, it is always? What's that? Come on. Do you agree that it has always been the case, sadly, that uh, every day in America, in cases that aren't brought to our attention, uh, there's there's some kind of you know somebody bumps into somebody, whatever, and some unhinged guy. Uh, goes ballistic and starts screaming about the ethnicity of the person that bumped into them. I mean, it, it, it now, and see, here's the thing. They didn't used to get documented with, uh, with, with iPhones and they didn't used to get shoved in front of us. And my view is 
that actually kept them at a lower level. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But you understand my the logic. You understand my intentions and that it's a good faith argument. Do you understand that? Sure. But anybody okay. who follows my Twitter will understand that what we're observing in this country is not an isolated incident. It is a daily or weekly incident, which makes a trend. And it, you know, if if people say, "Oh, I'm not going to pick up on this incident at two o'clock p.m. I'm not going to pick up at this incident at three o'clock p.m. I'm not going to pick up at four, five, six p.m." They are not going to understand the trend in this country. These are not isolated incidents. And that's the entire point. Put no, many of them are not isolated. On an hourly basis. And you see that we have a serious anti-Semitism problem in this country. And it's not about from the river to the sea. It's about being attacked. I'm not saying we don't have a serious uh, anti-Semitism problem. I'm suggesting that uh, that the, the, the kind of you know, mass amplification in what I consider an undiscerning way in this case, that's my view, of these incidents makes it worse, makes it worse. And and, and it, it it freaks Jewish people out more and in ways that probably ultimately aren't good for their immediate mental health and probably aren't productive in the long run because they lead to counter reactions that yeah, make things let me, you know, when there are big mobs of people yelling for a global anti-fada. Do you want to know what law enforcement is doing? This is true in New York, and it's true across capitals throughout Europe. They are providing additional security at synagogues. In some cases, they are warning Jews mm -hmm. to shelter in place. They are encouraging Jews to be extra vigilant, uh, maybe increased security at Jewish schools, which numerous times have been shot at, um, threatened with bombs. So it's not, mm -hmm. let's not pretend. Well, that's good. That's so, good. Yeah, we but, both so, applaud that, right? So, so let's not pretend this is like, oh, this is like a Jewish, like, overreaction. This is what law enforcement Mac, throughout the West is doing. Mac, you're misunderstanding Why me. Why do you think they're doing that if there isn't an objectively higher threat to the Jews? Why are they doing Max, that? Max, Max, I'm sorry. I'm really kind of disappointed you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's not an objectively higher threat to the Jews, okay? You got that. I'm not saying that the response of law authorities, uh, law enforcement authorities is not appropriate, okay? We agree on that. Okay, and I'm not I'm not uh, suggesting that there has not been a rise of anti-Semitism that is attributable to the current tension, just as there has been a rise on the other side. I mean, just just this morning, I read about uh, the the uh, apparently this uh, this uh, uh, the wife of this uh, prominent Obama official, not the same Obama official who harassed the the uh, street vendor, but. Um, I've got I've got her name somewhere, but she was uh, Jason Furman's wife. Uh, but, yeah. but but you know you read about this, okay? So so it's happening. It, you know it, it's happening in both. And yeah, that's a tribute. That wouldn't be happening if it hadn't been for October seventh. And a lot of this stuff wouldn't be. And 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 we should document it. But I do believe 
that the temperature level is at an unhealthy level. Yeah. In the interest of precision, in the Mm -hmm. specific case which you listed, which obviously is an offense, and, and, you know, maybe she should be pursued as a hate crime, what she said to this person was that she um, was a, uh, like, uh, a, a terrorist of sorts. She, because she, she was wearing a kaffia because of her right, scarf. Right, 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 right. So that could maybe be deemed a, a hate crime. She, she said, you know, I don't appreciate you, you know, running around the neighborhood looking like a terrorist. Yeah. Um, I do think that that's a little bit different than the other cases that happened on the very same day where Jews were targeted and threatened and the and the person who threatened them said that they were going to kill those Jews. This person didn't say she was going to kill that lady. Well, she said obviously that, it's different. And and right. it's and it and it's different from the 5-year-old Palestinian kid who was shot to death. Of course it's different. It, all this shit is happening we're wasting Max, Max we're wasting time. We know obviously it's different. Come on. The the uh let me let me ask you a different question. I mean, I think we understand each other's positions uh, on on this. Um, and uh, I or do you not do you not understand that my position is at least coherent and is rests on different I, I, assumptions, I, I, different beliefs? I, I but just want I want to correct something that I said. The person th- there were three Palestinian students shot at UVM. Uh, or, 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 I'm sorry, in Vermont, and it turns out that that attacker was pro-Palestine. Um, the, the, uh, the, the young boy who was killed by the landlord, I don't know if the landlord was pro-Palestine. What we do know is that he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't a student. Go on. Okay, I didn't bring that up, but okay, if that's true. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, um, do you uh, now, Do you disagree with this? I would say the October 7th attack uh, by Hamas predictably increased expressions of anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bigotry, regrettable though that is. I condemn it predictably, but let me finish. And that the current uh, 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 response by Israel, which is now killed, uh, you know, more than, even even if you accept the Israeli government's estimate of, of militants killed, uh, it's killed more than 10,000 uh, civilians out of a population of 2 million, which proportionally is like killing 2 million Americans. Do you agree that that regrettably, again, regrettably, but predictably is, is, is increasing the expression of anti-Semitism? That's a good question. I think that there are two um, issues here. One is Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. And the other is the Israeli response to it, which has killed a large number of Palestinian civilians. I think that, and I'm not saying that they're on the same level, but I do think that both the terrorist attack and the Israeli response um, has contributed to the rise of attacks um, on the Jewish diaspora, if that's your okay. question. Yeah. So, because as some people, um, I mean, I've even heard it called more in the past when the speech code was different, uh, anti-Semitic to say that things 
Israel does can increase anti-Semitism or the expression of anti-Semitism. But you don't contest that that may be a consequence of what is, at least in a quantitative sense, a disproportionate response by Israel. I think that there are many attacks against the Jewish diaspora, which are sort of publicly defended um, in the name of anti-Zionism or criticisms of Israel, but which more genuinely are motivated by anti-Semitism. That said, um, you know, let's say I was in charge of law enforcement in this country. Um, and I knew that after one of the most heinous terrorist attacks in world history anywhere, not just in Israel, um, but anywhere, you know, that Israel was, would then, of course, respond in a heavy-handed manner, um, I would predict a uptick um, in anti-Semitic incidents against the Jewish diaspora. So I um, do um, agree that there is likely a causal connection between the Israeli counterterrorism response and some of the threats and violence against the Jewish diaspora. Okay. Um, the, uh, I agree. The, um, there's, a, there's another kind of question uh, about, so let me just read you this uh, uh, tweet from Norman Finkelstein, who is, of course, himself Jewish and, and uh, with whom, of course, you disagree on certain. On, <laughs> I had him on my podcast, I got to say. Uh, you can't deny that he's entertaining, right? Well, I guess you might. <laughs> no, no, no. He, I, I read him too, but it's cringe. Uh, okay, so you and he disagree, it is safe to say, on this issue. But here's his tweet, and then I'll, I'll read it, and I'll tell you what my question is. He says, uh, this is in the wake of the firing of the President Penn and so on. The Jewish billionaire class has declared war on our nation's universities. Either you support Israel's genocidal war, or we will destroy you. That's the, the thing he's attributing. Now, I'm not going to ask you right now if you consider the tweet itself anti-Semitic. Let's get to that. My question is, uh, do you believe, I mean, given the fact that, uh, of course, there obviously were a number of uh, influential and affluent Jewish people who weighed in and tried to exert pressure on these universities. And in one case, uh, what they did may have been part of the constellation of forces that did lead to the firing of the president of Penn. G given that fact, do you think that as this tweet almost inadvertently suggests in a certain sense, I don't know, but do you think that will predictably uh, feed either anti-Semitism or the expression of anti-Semitism, given that, of course, one of the tropes is of anti-Semitism is influential Jews are running the world and, 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 and so on, right? Do you think there's a danger of that? Um, yeah, I think that there is a danger of that just by the by in terms of what you read um that's uh you know Norman Finkelstein is promoting this idea that a Jewish billionaire class of of sort of very wealthy Jewish outsiders are interfering or influencing um you know the 
who, you know, not just the content, but even who the president of Harvard University is. So it could contribute to one of the big anti-Semitic tropes that Jews are rich um, and that they're having a negative impact on, you know, the rest of society. Um, so yes, claims like that um, feed into anti-Semitic tropes. Um, I do think that it's a misunderstanding about what's going on on college campuses because you have certainly a large number of Jews, most Jews, um, feel like they're under assault. And most Jews, of course, you know, your modal Jewish student certainly doesn't have a billion dollars. They're more likely actually to have academic debt. They're much more likely to have debt than to have um, a billion dollars. I also think more interestingly that um, it's, it's kind of absurd to say that there shouldn't be outside influence, influence outside of universities, giving them uh, advice about how the university could be better. Um, these universities, they like to advertise themselves as being important actors in the world. Uh, Harvard hosts the Kennedy School of Government, which is all oriented towards creating leaders, not the leaders of Harvard, but the leaders of, you know, the next generation uh, for American leaders, leaders all over the world in industry, in politics. Um, the university system is an important network of actors within the larger society. Um, of course, it should be responsive to what's going on, not just, you know, in Cambridge University, but what's going on around the world. Also, very ironically, President Gay, I believe her name is the president of Harvard, it looks like mm -hmm. she's retaining her position there. She explicitly uh, basically campaigned for the position on events that happened outside of Harvard. She was, she was campaigning on a need for a new direction of the university, especially after George Floyd. So what essentially what they're saying is that external events should be used in the service of their political ideology, but external events and people outside of the university um, shouldn't weigh in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my view is college presidents should just say, look, we're, we're a university. We do not comment on any political or geopolitical developments. We don't take positions. It's not our job. We just we just teach. But uh, but that that aside. OK, so a follow up question then. There's also uh, an enormous amount of money that supports DEI. The University of Michigan annually pays its DEI employees 14 million dollars a year. You think about most professors, you know, at Michigan, I don't know what the modal salary is, but it or the mean salary, but you know, you have people who are teaching at that school for tens of thousands of dollars a year with debt. Um, so a $14 million allotment in this system, and it's growing, um, is substantial uh funding. And there's a lot of outside funding that goes into these universities, 
which um, doesn't get the ire of people like Norman Finkelstein. Okay, so follow-up question. So if if Israel's uh, ongoing war in Gaza predictably increases uh, uh, anti-Semitic violence around the world, uh, and if the interventions, and in some cases very like prominent in the case of say Bill Ackman, it's like he's he's he wants us to know he's out there, right? Prominent uh, interventions, uh, uh, you know, uh, by uh, affluent uh, Jewish, uh, I guess you could say pro-Israel people, uh, do um, predictably, as as I think you're saying, increase the expressions of anti-Semitism as well. Should either of these actors, should Israel or people like Bill Ackman, should they take this into account that like, Okay, the, in terms of calibrating their interventions, that there is this possible downside. I actually so predictab think that, predictable downside. I actually think that what, and his name is Bill Ackman, right? I believe that AC, he, ACK. I mean, yeah, I think that he has done a service for um, the Jewish diaspora. Um, although, yes, you could argue that he feeds into, you know, tropes that are tweeted out by, like, Norman Finkelstein. Um, but in general, DEI is extremely harmful to thousands and thousands of okay, Jewish I, I'm not, students I'm not talking, I'm not talking, and faculty. Okay, I, I, so, to, to I wasn't extent, talking about, I'm not talking about DEI, because no, I don't no, think but, that but is perceived is, as an inter, as a pro-Israel no, intervention. Bob, this is, this isn't a, what, what Ackman was doing. Yes, specifically, it's an attack on the leadership of the president of Harvard. But more generally, it's an attack on DEI, which is arguably anti-Semitic and affects large numbers of Jews every single day. So overall, I think that he had a net positive with respect to the effect on Jews in America. I'm happy and, to answer your question as well with respect to the Israeli response. Mm -hmm. um, the, I do think that Israel, when it comes to questions of um, Jewish security, Israel needs to think about the security of the quote-unquote Jewish state and, you know, Israel, as well as the Jewish diaspora. Um, and clearly, there are some trade-offs there, because a strong response, which could enhance Israeli security, could be um, very unpalatable, to put it mildly, um, very mildly, internationally, which could have the effect of mobilizing attacks against Jews, which might otherwise not happen. So it's a difficult strategic um, calculation to the extent that there is a potential trade-off there. Obviously, Israel is prioritizing behaviors which, agree or not, it believes are in its national security interests. Okay, and uh, I don't want to pursue this and uh, get into a debate about it, but I'm curious, 
do you think uh, solely in terms of Israel's own national security, let alone that kind of negative externality of uh, of fomenting anti-Semitism, um, do you think Israel has gone too far in Gaza or they're still rationally pursuing the national security of Israel? I definitely think that Israel is being rational, whether it's optimizing in terms of its strategy could certainly be debated. Um, I do I do tend to push back against those who say that there is no strategic thought to what Israel is doing and that Israel's behavior isn't even motivated by national security calculations. I could make an argument that Israel is responding in a way which agree or disagree, it does believe to be um, strategic. Um, I, I, Of course, I also agree that it's absolutely awful how many Palestinian civilians are being killed. Um, and of course, any Palestinian killed who's a civilian is too many. And certain Israeli attacks, uh, probably in retrospect, um, I wouldn't have approved of because the threat to the population would be greater than the expected strategic value of taking out the terrorist. Okay. Um, and just uh, quickly to get back to the, 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 the kind of Bill Ackman question, I don't know what his position is on the river to the sea, but it's clearly a goal of some of these people. And, and certainly you saw this in the uh, Stefanik uh, questioning the president. It's clearly the goal of some of these people to get uh, the phrase from the river to the sea uh, banned on campuses. And I guess you'd say that's going too far in any event. And 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 yes, that does make it even easier for the anti-Semites to use this to feed their tropes, I guess. Or, or, or would you? This whole conversation about speech on campus is complex and it does require nuance. What I, what, I, what I was saying in particular is that I do not believe that it's constitutional to for mob for, for masked mobs to scream at Jewish students for a global antifada, especially at a time when there actually is rising violence and threats against Jewish students and Jews in the United States and around the West more generally. Um, that and I don't think it would be unconstitutional for someone to say that they think there should be a Palestine from the river to the sea. That does not necessarily mean that all expressions of from the river to the sea should be um, would necessarily be in accordance with university uh, rules. For example. Let's say a university decided that it was only going to hire a job candidate um, who addresses the question of Israel, who believed that there should be a Palestine from the river to the sea, and that this was systematic university policy, such that anybody, any 
aspiring faculty member who believed in Israel or, or who objected to, from the river to the sea would be selected out of the application pool. Or let's say there's a professor in the class who's constantly saying that Israel has no right to exist and that Palestine um, has claims to the entirety of the land. Um, at the very least, that would be completely inconsistent with the way that speech has been applied on any other issues at the university. And it would indicate a bias, especially if it was supported, you know, at the highest levels of the university administration. Um, also, I don't, you know, in some universities, they actually ban any kind of political advocacy at all, like during exam hours in a library where students are trying to, um, you know, get straight A's. I think that it would be, in, in such a case, it could be against school rules to chant from the river to the sea to distract students from studying or even to hang a banner over the studying venue um, that could be not be in compliance with university rules. So distinctions do need to be made with respect to law and university rules, but both should be followed. Okay. Well, I want to I want to add one thing that just occurred to me about like my view. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I've talked about we've talked about Israel. We've talked about the domestic situation in America. I think there's even a conceivable uh, kind of feedback effect between the two. And let me just say, in my view, the Israeli people uh, are already uh, more freaked out than it is in their interest to be. I totally understand it. The reaction to October 7th was the predictable human reactions they had. It's a small country, uh, proportionally speaking. Uh, there was, you, you know, the, the slaughter was large for such a small country. Uh, they were egregious atrocities and so on. I get the reaction. My view, given the way I see what they're doing in Gaza playing out uh, in terms of their interest in the long run uh, and the extent to which that is uh, politically sustained in part by how freaked out they are, I think they're already more freaked out than it is in their interest to be. And I, I, I do suspect that if they go on social media and go, oh, my God, America, too, is, is just immersed in anti-Semitic attacks. When, again, there has been a very unfortunate increase. I don't deny that. But to get back to why I worry about the general temperature level on social media on both sides, the depiction uh, from, from both sides uh, about their, their grievances, most of which are in and of themselves legitimate. This is also a thing. Um, I worry about. I mean, human history, like mass violence, is, is just almost entirely a story uh, of people by virtue of human nature not rationally pursuing their self-interest, you know? And so I see, I, I personally see this a lot. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I yeah. want to respond to that. I think that there is a common misunderstanding about the severity of the terrorism threat against Israel, particularly by Americans who lived through 
9-11. What happened on 9-11 was, um, you know, probably the worst terrorist attack um, in um, modern terrorism history since the advent of international terrorism in the early 1970s in terms of the number of people Mm. killed, et cetera. But it doesn't doesn't compare with October 7th. I totally agree. I agree. Well, well, what ended up happening was the United States dramatically overestimated the ongoing terrorism threat starting on, say, September 12th. Um, Mm -hmm. And the United States, of course, would launch a war on terrorism, um, not just in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq, even though the terrorists on 9-11 were unrelated to Iraq. And then the United States would actually greatly exacerbate the al-Qaeda threat in Iraq as al-Qaeda in Iraq would spring up due to the power vacuum created by removing Saddam Hussein and then AQI over the course of years would then turn into the Islamic State. And so a lot of Americans, they look, they're very skeptical about strong responses to terrorism because in the most salient case, and you know about this well, Bob, because you are very knowledgeable about many things, including the area of psychology, and you know very well that this is an availability heuristic. You know, Americans, they think about a heavy-handed response, and Iraq, you know, often comes to mind, not because it's necessarily comparable to the Israeli case, but because it's such a salient example in their minds. It's easily retrievable. The Israeli counterterrorism situation is very, very different than the American counterterrorism situation. Um, There are power in numbers, as you also probably know, when it comes to organizations. You know, the all else equal, the more members of an organization, the stronger that, that, that it is. And that's also true when it comes to militant groups. There's a correlation, and I do believe that relationship is causal, between the number of perpetrators of an attack in general, in general, um, and the amount of violence that it can commit. Um, in Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, what you had was something like 2,500 um, member, you know, some, most, most of them were Hamas, but not all of them, um, crossing in from Gaza into Israel. It's not surprising that they would commit one of the largest terrorist attacks on record. But even outside of the actual perpetrate of those specific operatives, the Hamas organization, you know, credibly claims something like 30,000 members. Uh, That's only one terrorist group which is committed to the genocidal destruction of Israel. There are many other terrorist groups which um, are essentially allies of Hamas in the destruction of Israel, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigade, the Lion's Den. So looking at the terrorist groups that are right next to Israel, not thousands and thousands of miles like Iraq was to the United States, but they are um, arguably in Israel, or at the very least, they border Israel. Um, We're talking about, um, you know, 
possibly close to 100,000 terrorists. And to the north of Israel, just on Israel's northern border, you have a terrorist group which is even stronger than any Palestinian terrorist group, including Hamas, called Hezbollah. Hezbollah claims, according to its leadership, that it has 100,000 members. It, it's believed that it has 150,000 rockets. All of these groups have substantial state sponsorship um, to varying degrees from, uh, you know, as obviously Hezbollah is mostly supported by Iran, um, but you also have Turkish government support, Qatari government support. These are major wealthy countries which are supplying these groups with money, um, PR, and even hiding the leadership. Um, my point is that Israel faces an unmatched terrorism threat. Um, and so they're given the, it's not imaginary, given the objective threat mm -hmm. that Israel faces from terrorists, it does reinforce the logic of a strong counterterrorism response. It is also, this is the last thing I'll say because I've been talking for a while on this, but it is important to point out that Hezbollah was expected to open a second front against Israel because in the past, uh, when Israel has responded violently, kinetically, in Gaza in response to terrorism and the damage to the Palestinian population was orders of magnitude lower, Hezbollah did open up a second front. And so most people, frankly, including myself, expected Hezbollah already to open a major second front against Israel, which could be much more damaging than even Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And so an argument can be made that the strong Israeli response in Gaza, although horrible for the Palestinian population, has had the net effect of making Israel safer to the extent, and this is unknowable, whether that heavy-handed response has helped to deter Nasrallah from opening the second front, and even overall saving lives. There is a strategic argument that can be made for Israel's strong, heavy-handed response, even though it is disgusting how many Palestinians have suffered directly from it. I just want to say one last thing, and that is that I'm not predicting, I'm not making a prediction that Hezbollah will not open a second front. It may well right. do so even today. I don't know. Well, Whenever uh, Nasrallah as, speaks, as Hama like, if Hamas becomes truly threatened, its existence becomes truly threatened, the calculation may well change. Yes, among other things, it may or, well. Or if it looks like wholesale ethnic cleansing and they are heading into Egypt. But, but Netanyahu is explicitly saying to Nasrallah, mm -hmm. "Do not open a second front because Israel will turn southern Lebanon, make southern Lebanon look the way." Gaza looks. And Nasrallah, in my opinion, and I study uh, militant group leaders a lot, I have a book on it, uh, I do believe that Nasrallah is also a strategic leader 
mm-hmm. who weighs his decisions carefully, much more carefully than the Hamas leadership ever mm-hmm. did. And we know for a fact that when previously, when Israel has responded in a very heavy-handed manner in southern Lebanon uh, to Hezbollah provocations and attacks, Nasrallah has said, if I knew what I know now about how strong Israel's response would be, he never would have authorized the attack. And I teach that example in my module on deterrence about whether terrorist groups can be deterred. I do believe that although Nasrallah may not in the end be deterred by Israel, he is the kind of leader based on his own statements, which suggests that he is subject to deterrent calculations. Okay. I agree with much of what you just said, certainly not all, and maybe someday we can come back and have a whole debate about what uh, what a rational uh, strategy would be for Israel going forward. Um, uh, I, I I don't think what they're doing now is is uh, in their interest, and, and I think it certainly is not in America's interest to be supporting it. Uh, but the um, uh, now, if you have a few minutes to talk about your own ideological uh, origin story, I find it interesting. If you just have, uh, we've talked about this a little before. Now, my segue to it is going to just be to mention the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, because, you know, as you know, it's part of a kind of a constellation of, of pro-Israel institutions. I would say uh, FDD and ardently one. And uh, I want to let me just get one more advertisement in from my own worldview and my own kind of grievances is a tweet from Jonathan Shands, our vice president at FDD, who you know, he found this was a few weeks ago. He found one picture. You know, I've seen a lot of these demonstrations, all these Palestinian flags. He found one one picture of uh, of a Hamas flag, one Hamas flag at one demonstration. And he and he wrote, quote, these protests. Again, picture of one flag, at one protest. These protests are not simply in support of Palestinians. They are backing Hamas, which means they're backing Hamas's Iran backed terrorism that is powered by an- annihilationist, jihadist and anti-Semitic. Ideologies. I mean, I applaud him for at least uh, being clear about what evidence he was building that pretty large generalization on. But anyway, back to your origin story. So one one interesting thing about you is um, you are, on the one hand, I would say staunchly pro-Israel. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But you are also yeah, I, you are wrong about that. Okay. Well, I I, I let me let me let me uh, just uh, finish. Just a cl- I, I, I let, no let, me, let me go ahead. I, you, you, no know what, you know I'm what? No irony, you know what? You know what irony I'm I'm referring to is that uh, on certain on a certain set of issues, some of which we have discussed, you would be in alignment with staunchly pro-Israel people. But as a rule, you are what I would call a restrainer. You're very skeptical about the use of American military power and so on. And in fact, I think, are you, do you still have an affiliation with the Quincy Institute? Uh, no, no, I don't. You don't. But yeah. I do. But you did. Anyway, <laughs> the irony lives on, I think, because you remain something of a restrainer. And yet, and here's the origin story I'm talking about. I think you told me once you were, you used to be uh, more... You used to be a stereotypical pro-Israel guy, right? Like you were at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which I think was more or less set up by APAC. And then you started, and and and, and again, the stereotypical kind of uh, 
pro-Israel Washington person is a hawk in a broader sense. They they tend to, you know, they 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 would favor the proxy intervention in Syria, their cold warriors, and and on and on. Um you made a break in a sense with the Pete, your 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 comrades or colleagues at uh, Wineap ideologically. But I would have inferred from the conversation we just had that the break wasn't incomplete, that, that, that there are parts that you have uh, commonalities with them and that I don't share. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're, you're so you say you're not staunchly pro-Israel. You can start out talking about what you mean by that. And then. Yeah, just, sure. So so when, when you look at US, some of the most important U.S. foreign policy questions over the past 15 years, which are related to Israel, um, I have not been on the pro-Israel side. So specifically, very early on, I was a big critic of the Iraq war. I was a critic of intervening against Gaddafi, who was very anti-Israel. I opposed regime change in Libya. Um, on Yemen, I haven't been a supporter of the campaign against the Houthis, even though the Houthis are anti-Israel. I've been a critic of the Saudi bombings, um, which have been indiscriminate against Yemen. Um, in With respect to the Iran nuclear deal, um, I believe that the uh, Iran nuclear deal um, should have gone through. I didn't oppose maximum pressure to derail the Iran nuclear deal, and I was critical of that. When it came to Syria, I was not in favor of toppling Assad, even though Israel would have liked that because Israel was against the Assad Hezbollah Iran axis. So people often say, you know, I'm like some pro Israel guy, but when you look at the actual policies, not small ones, the key US foreign policies related to Israel over the past 15 years, that wouldn't lead someone, you know, to conclude that I'm sort of reflexively pro-Israel. Um, what, what, what is my North Star? What is my North Star? Isn't Israel, but I am um, against terrorists. Um, so for that reason, I was actually much more sympathetic um, towards Assad's position in the Syria war than sort of your standard pro-Israel supporter, because uh, Assad was fighting against al-Qaeda, and he was fighting against um, ISIS. Um, in Yemen, I was concerned that the attacks against the Houthis would empower al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. um, I, in, in Libya, I was concerned that if we took out Gaddafi, that it would be a boon to terrorists, not just in Libya, but in the Sahel region. Um, and in this conflict, too, with Israel, I'm sympathetic to the counterterrorism side. That's my North Star. And I believe that I've had a lot of intellectual consistency on it. 
Okay. Um, and and would would you say to what extent, if any, would you say that the U.S. pursuit of the uh, various policies you oppose, um, like the Iraq War, maybe in particular, but some of the others, uh, was to some extent a result of lobbying by what is called the Israel lobby, by which you know I mean a, a, a loose. Not not you know, a, not a consolidated, you know, in the Walsh, in in in, yes. in the uh, in in the Mearsheimer Walt sense, yeah. I think that there's no question that Israel was in favor um, of uh, the Bush administration going to war uh, in Iraq to topple Saddam in March 2003. Mm -hmm. I do think that the argument that the United States did this sort of at the behest of lobbying from the foreign government of Israel is a very weak argument. Um, I think that uh, there are many reasons why the United States made that disastrous decision. And I would put Israeli lobbying very low on that list for one reason is because if you look at um APAC or any or what Israel the Israeli government was saying um before um the discussion the very public discussion about the Bush administration's determination to topple Saddam the focus was not on Iraq but it was on Iraq. It was on attacking Iraq. And so anybody who says that, oh, it must have come from Israel, the attack on Iraq, needs to explain, well, why, given Israel's overwhelming focus on Iran, did the United States end up attacking a different country, which, by the way, helped to strengthen Iran? Uh, as it happened, yeah, that wasn't the idea, but it did wind up strengthening Iran. Um, to be honest with you, I I do care about Israel. I'm not going to deny that. Uh -huh. And I'm also not going to deny that FDD, Foundation for Defense of Democracy, which is a think tank which actually doesn't like me and with which I um, have never been affiliated before but yeah. uh, in my life. But to to an extent, we actually disagree not so much in terms of our goals, but in terms of the means of achieving the goals. So, for example, I disagreed with them over Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, because I thought that it would make, I thought the Iran nuclear deal would make Israel and the world safer. Mm -hmm. FDD played a large part in, in, in derailing the yep. Iran nuclear deal because it thought that the Iran nuclear deal made Israel less safe, et cetera. Yeah, well, um, wouldn't you say that's an issue where the, where the so whatever you want to call it, the Israel lobby, whatever, probably made the decisive difference? Like, we would probably still be in the Iran deal if it weren't for that. I think that FDD 
at the ear. I don't, I don't just of, mean FDD, but I, I mean, broadly speaking, Menendez and the, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, you know, in the Walt Mearsheimer's sense of Israel. I mean, I, uh, I do think that that advocacy from groups like FDD had the ear of Pompeo and that it um, certainly contributed and may well have been um, the key factor in getting uh, Trump to um, back away from and essentially kill the um, nuclear deal. Yeah. And Sheldon Adelson had the ear of Trump himself. You know, he donated tons of money to, to uh, Republican campaigns, including Trump, right? So, um, yeah, the, the Iran nuclear deal didn't go the direction that I wanted. And um, it was influenced by, um, you know, domestic um, actors who, frankly, often treat me as an enemy. Uh, yeah, in many cases, uh, with good reason. Not that you deserve to be anyone's enemy, but there, there are genuine disagreements. Uh, and that's what I was pointing to uh, about, you know, given... Given, yeah. given your lineage that you were once at YNAP, what I think it's been renamed. I was, I was. When I, when I graduated just with a master's degree from Oxford, I was lucky enough to get a fellowship position at the Washington Institute. And mm -hmm. I loved that job um, because it was right in D.C. At the time, I actually think the Washington Institute was even a bigger actor than it is now. It's still in existence. It still has influential people, Satloff and Levitt, etc. But at that time, I think it might have been even bigger. And that time yeah. was immediately right after 9-11. And so everyone was primed to think about U.S. Mideast policy. And, it, and, and I was there during um, the, the war, or at least the buildup to the war against Iraq. And it was a really um, fascinating time to be there. Um, of course, what the Washington Institute and other think tankers, but not just them, but also the Pentagon and the State Department and the president and the CIA, what what what, what they said about Iraq turned out to be unsubstantiated. And so I became disillusioned um, with um, that, with, with basically being in D.C., or at mm -hmm. the very least, I became very skeptical um, about the credibility of claims, even when they were repeated by experts, um, you know, over and over again. And right. so that has uh, that did move me to be more sympathetic to critics of the establishment. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for taking the time, Max. We should definitely do this again. There's there's more to argue about, um, and in some cases, agree about. Uh, the um, you know people can find you on Twitter at m a x a b r a h m s one word. I think right, and no. they can find me at Robert Ryder. Uh, they can subscribe to the Non Zero newsletter. Uh, uh, in addition to the Non Zero podcast, which this is, uh, I try to have a diversity of uh, views on on the podcast. Unlike some no, podcasts. I appreciate that. Thank um, you very much for having me. Thank you, Max. And people, it's, uh, it sounds like we could have a whole discussion about your book, but in any event, people could check it out. Rules for Rebels, the Science of Victory in Military, in Militant History. 
Uh, if anybody wants to send a copy to a leader of Hamas, uh, it may not be too late, right, Max, to, 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 to enlighten him? Bob, I want to apologize for being so feisty. I really do appreciate you and you're having me on your show. Oh, I got a little feisty, too. So let's just forgive each other and, uh, and call it a day. You're the man. Catch you later. Okay. See you down the road. Bye-bye.